All right, good morning. We're recording. If you guys want to find your seats, and we will get started here. We have some spies in the room that make sure we start on time, and they let Art know. So if we don't start at 9, I get a text message. So um, anyways, I, uh, I talked with Art yesterday. He's doing well. He's working on his farmer's tan, and so he's almost done with that. Uh, but he'll be, he'll be back next week. Next week, we'll pick up on chapter 56. Today, we're doing chapter 55. Um, last week, 54. And so remember, remember what I said last week, 53, 54, 55 are kind of all connected together. We're at the peak of Isaiah in our study. And now we're at the, at the top of this mountain and we're kind of walking around at the top of this mountain. And so last week, when we looked at chapter 54... We were reminded of God's faithful promises that have occurred and will occur. We were challenged with holding fast to these promises. And Isaiah gave us a couple illustrations for us to think about. He gave us an illustration of Israel as a barren woman, Israel as a deserted wife, and this woman and this wife being restored to the Lord, right? Her husband himself. Chapter 54 reminded us of how God has chosen to restore Israel. So remember, salvation was being explained in chapter 54 for Israel. Um, Chapter 54 also talked about how salvation is a gift for all. And then we read and saw how Israel will be saved and how the church in Israel will one day be together in the millennial kingdom. And so now as we get here to chapter 55... There's another shift, okay? Remember, chapter 53 was the work that Christ accomplished. Chapter 54 was the results of what will happen to Israel because of what Christ did. And now what we're going to see here in chapter 55 is an extension of these results. But now it's going to be towards the Gentiles and those nations and what those promises will look like. So remember, God was using Israel to accomplish his purposes. And because of their failure at this, God has now shifted to his son, Jesus. Chapter 54 was focused on Israel's salvation. God communicating, I will put Israel aside for a little bit. He has not forgotten about Israel. And now here in chapter 55, we will see salvation being brought forth to everyone through Jesus, the Gentile nations, and folks, that's you and I. In this chapter, we will see an extension of his promises and a stronger focus on Christ and how the extension of these promises will be and will continue to occur. And so if I had to write a theme verse, I put it in, there, in your outline there. The main theme of chapter 55 is God offers joy and peace at no cost to anyone who will seek him and repent in repentance before it is too late. And so let me read you a quote as we open this up. It's a it's a quote out of the book Gentle and Lowly, but John Calvin said it. So there's he says here, there's nothing that troubles a a conscience more said John Calvin on this passage, Isaiah 55, than when we think that God is like ourselves. 
He isn't like you. Even the most intense of human love is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartful thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. And that's what we're going to see here. A lot of mess. And we're going to see chapters 54 and 55 are essentially the response to God. God calls for us and he, God is requiring us to do something in 54 and 55. But 55, especially for us. God can require this response from us because he is God. And because of his completed work of redemption that was accomplished by his son on the cross. We will see how chapter 55 is the greatest invitation to everyone. The greatest and most important invitation that every soul must pay attention to and must decide how they will respond. Isaiah now calls all sinners to repentance. If you are a current believer, and if you're not a current believer, Isaiah is calling you to true, genuine faith. What we will see as this chapter unfolds, for those who turn to the Lord's marvelous and incomparable thoughts and ways, there will be happy success based on the word of truth. For those who do not, there will be a continuation in judgment. Or in this case, the exile for Israel away from the land and away from God's blessings. And so my goal here this morning is to look at the greatest invitation ever offered and given to mankind and help us respond in the right way so we can experience the greatest peace the greatest joy, the greatest comfort that our Messiah offers and came to die and give on our behalf from chapter 53. So I basically have broken chapter 55 down into two different types of invitations. And I want us to look closely at both of these this morning. And within each of these invitations, we will see them broken down kind of into Three sections, and I've labeled these sections as kind of the call, the explanation, or the why, or the benefit, and then ultimately the results of this invitation. And so those two invitations, invitation number one, coming from verses one through five, it's the command to come. And then invitation number two, kind of broken down from verses six through 13, is going to be a command to seek. And so let's look at our first invitation this morning from verses one through five. And I want you to notice the command to come. So let's read that. It says chapter 55, verses one through five. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat 
what is good and delight your soul in riches. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live and I will cut an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithfulness, to the faithful loving kindness of David. Behold, I have given him as a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of Yahweh, your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has adorned you with beautiful glory. And so within this invitation, the command to come, we're going to see the call here broken down in verses one through two. And he starts off, Isaiah starts off with this word, ho. The prophet calls out loud and clear to all that can hear him with an exclamation point. This is an important announcement, one word, and is therefore essentially put here for a reason. This word is a unique call. Ho, or maybe in your translation, it might say up, or it might say woe, or ah, or alas. All of these words meaning pay attention. This is important. The word is basically emphasizing here to the reader, and there's an idea of begging with a plea. Ho. Eventually, that's the Hebrew aspect. This word found itself not just in Hebrew, but also in the Greek. So I looked it up in the Greek. And this word in the Greek does mean to come. The notion to follow. It's where we get words like hostess, hostel, and hotel. Think about what a hostess does when she calls your name and asks you to follow them. The hostess wants you to come. Think about what a hostel or a hotel accomplishes. These are places of refuge. Come, lay your head and rest at these places. Hotels want you to come and stay with them. So this is the idea of this word and its meaning and its placement at the beginning of this text. Ho, and then it says, everyone who thirst, come to the waters. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this word. It's fascinating. He says, ho, This is the gospel note, a short, significant appeal, urging you to be wise enough to attend to your own interest. Oh, the haughtiness of God, that he should, as it were, become a beggar to his own creature and stoop from the magnificence of his glory to cry, ho, to foolish and ungrateful men. Spurgeon wrote that. And so the Lord invites those who are thirsty to come. To come to Him and quench their thirst. He assures them that He has an abundant supply of water, as well as wine and milk. This is a gracious invitation extended by the Lord. Here's the best part. He invites us to come without money and without cost. 
All that is required is that we come to him. Notice all who is invited in these verses. Everyone. So it's a free, universal gospel invitation. The servant's redemptive work and glorious kingdom are for the benefit of all who are willing to come. And we read about that same invitation in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Isaiah is inviting his readers to participate in the benefits obtained by the suffering of the servant that happened in chapter 53. And notice what he says here. He's basically saying no money, without money, without price, benefits in the servant's kingdom will be free because of his redemptive work. And it made me think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And one of the things I want to point out here is this illustration of wine and milk. These are symbols for abundance. Satisfaction, prosperity. We find similar illustrations with these words, wine and milk, in the Song of Solomon in chapter 5, verse 1. He talks about this. In Joel chapter 3, verse 18, he uses very similar symbolism of water, wine, and milk. But I like how one commentary kind of explained the three categories water, wine, and milk. And I want to share that with you this morning. This commentary said, and he explained it this way, there are three different drinks mentioned in verse 1. Water, wine, milk. The waters represent that which gives life. The wine represents that which gives joy. And the milk represents that which gives growth. God offers every sinner a full, abundant life. God offers every sinner a fulfilling, joyful, and purposeful existence. He offers any sinner a refreshing, fulfilling, and happy, and developing life. All he asks is that you be honest enough to admit your thirst for it. And so you can go down a ton of rabbit holes about what's the water, the wine, and the milk. But I think the biggest takeaway here is it is showing a life of abundance. All three categories here. That is what he's getting the point at. And I think Jesus may have had these verses in his mind from Isaiah when he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus told the woman at the well she would never thirst again if she drank the water he gave her. This is the same water he offered her. Jesus, he is the water. He is the living water. And John 7, 37 supports that when he does say this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John seven thirty seven. And so here's the idea here. Water many times symbolizes the word of God. 
This supernatural wine and milk is from the Lord himself. It is symbolizing his provision. He sustained the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness. He sustained them in the exile. He's going to sustain them when they come out of the exile. He has always made provision for Israel. And here he is continuing to make this provision for us. Kyle, I'd like to point out that and, Revelation twenty two seventeen says the very same thing. Awesome. Thank you. I have that in here somewhere. He will make provision for you as well. Isaiah continues, right, with the furtherance of this call in verse 2 and his command to come by asking a question to the audience. And so since it's free for everyone and God has chosen this provision of salvation in this way, we get to verse 2 and he says, why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? This is a fair question. This is a fair question for all of us today as well. In his invitation, God has asked his people to ask themselves, why are you spending money that cannot satisfy? Why do you continue to do this? This is a remarkable yet relevant question. Considering all the things we can pour our time, our money, and our effort into. Things which will never satisfy the way the Lord can satisfy. And what I think is interesting here is God never asks questions that he doesn't already know the answer to. He knows the answer to this question. And so often, we are lavishing away our time. We're lavishing away our opportunities and strengths in reading and hearing things that don't matter. Earthly things. Laboring to seek happiness in the world and worldly things. All of this isn't bread. Oftentimes, we know this. It's junk. It's not wholesome. It does not nourish, but it's harmful and destructive. Instead of renewing our minds in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, like it tells us, we would instead go after things that don't matter. And so this is what Isaiah is getting at. It's a free gift. Why are you spending your money on things that don't satisfy? And look at the second half of this verse here, right? He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. In this verse, I often think of the times when I was making foolish decisions as a young child or even a youth and my parents would ask me questions about what am I doing And they would provide an explanation. And often I knew when I was in big trouble because my parents would say, hey, listen here. Listen here, buddy. Right? Listen here. And so just as my father would do the same thing, 
after asking the questions he already knew the answer to, right? And I would give some foolish explanation. He would then say, sit down and listen here. That's exactly what's happening here with Isaiah and, and the father who have intervened in the foolishness of his son, the foolishness of Israel, the foolishness of us. So this invitation is very clear. The offer is made, the provision is made, and everything is available. But I'd like to point out, we still must do something. We still have to do something. First, we must listen carefully, as the verse says. The satisfaction of God's promises sometimes puzzles those who do not listen But most importantly, they don't listen carefully. It takes time, essentially, here. It takes attention and effort to listen carefully. And some people just aren't willing to do this. Second, we must eat what is good. So here, this requires discernment on our part. So think about this. If you got two tables in front of you, one with junk food, And the other one with veggies, which one do you think Gary's going after? I'm just kidding. Which one do you think the kid's going after, right? What do you think, if those are the two options, you're going after? What do you think the child is going to choose? And so we must be discerning in this. The other thing here says we must choose what is good and then eat it. Many just simply eat whatever spiritual meal is set before them without taking care to see that it is good. The last thing it says, says we must let your soul delight itself in abundance. Even when we listen, even when we eat what is good, we still must let our soul delight in the life of abundance. And so here's the idea here. You can sit down at a very awesome meal, a very great spiritual meal, but by your stubborn and bad attitudes, simply not delight in it. Just simply not enjoy it, right? You can make this wonderful meal and your kids can still complain about what's happening. And so that's the idea here. And so after using the imagery of a man needing to quench his thirst, an image that would have very special special significance to those living in this area of the Middle East, the Lord is inviting his people to essentially return to him. For he, only he can satisfy their spiritual thirst. Only he can provide the spiritual water to save their souls. He is also reminding them that he is a gracious and merciful God. They need not, indeed not, they cannot earn the right to return to the Lord. They need only to return just as they are, and he will provide everything for them. And so do you see this invitation? Do you see this command to come? Do you see this call? Do you see the need? And I just want to 
wrap this up here in this thought and just notice the prerequisites of the call here. These three prerequisites of this call is you must recognize that you have a need. You must recognize that you are bankrupt and you cannot afford to pay and have this need satisfied. You have no money. You must also have the desire to come. Listen carefully. You must have that desire to come to God for salvation. And so as we move away from these two verses, we will see in the beginning of verse 3, another extension of the call. The thought carries over from the idea of let your soul delight in itself in abundance. And now we will see the explanation of this invitation in verses 3 and 4. We're going to see the explanation or the why or the benefit. And so you can see here, as we get into verse 3, he says, whoever will genuinely feast upon the word must willfully incline their ear towards what God will say. This verse, believe it or not, it made me think of the telephone game. You guys remember that? And the next person's ability to understand what was said. The next person's ability to correctly communicate the sentence. It also made me think of not my family, right? Maybe, maybe you guys experience this, but this is why you often hear parents um, and family members say they were all raised the same. I don't know why that one doesn't listen. They all heard the same things. I don't know why that one doesn't listen, right? I don't experience that whatsoever in my family. Um, so here's the idea here. This explains why two people can listen to the same message on a Sunday school morning or in Sunday for the sermon. Two people can listen to the same message and one benefit and the other not benefit. Often the one who did not benefit simply just did not incline their ear to the Lord. They chose not to listen carefully. And so the second half of that verse, verse 3b, it says the why. Why should we incline our ear? Why should we be listening carefully? And he says, hear and your soul shall be saved. That's why. The benefit from inclining your ear to God is impressive. When we do it, we have life for our soul. So for the one who will listen to the Lord, God promises a covenant. And he says it here. And from Isaiah's perspective, this covenant is still in the future, right? He says here towards the end of that, I will cut an everlasting covenant. And then that covenant is also characterized where he says here, the sure mercies of David, right? Or the faithful loving kindness of David. And so when we see this word everlasting covenant, this is the new covenant that God will not, that will give not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles nations for the whole world. Isaiah is tying the new covenant in Christ from 53 and pointing back to the promises from the Davidic covenant in which Israel would have been familiar with. 
And when he says the sure mercies of David, or he says faithful, loving kindness, what he is saying here is that the Davidic covenant promised David that his seed would be a ruler over Israel and an everlasting kingdom. And we read about that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. We also read about that seed of David that will rule over Israel and the whole world and the everlasting kingdom in Psalm 89, verses 27 through 29. And then I want to point out the Apostle Paul connected the dots for us here as well with the resurrection of Christ with the same promise. And so if you turn to Acts chapter 13, 34, this is important because essentially the resurrection solidified and closed that Davidic covenant and is now moving forward into this new covenant. And, and here you have the apostle Paul talking about this and solidifying it. And, he, and so Acts chapter 13, verse 34, he says, and as for, and as for the fact that he raised from, raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. He's connecting the dots here as well for us. And so Acts chapter 13 verse 34 shows that the Davidic covenant was confirmed by the resurrection. We see the basis here as well in this verse in Isaiah and in Acts that there's a link for the Christian to apply this passage. God made an everlasting covenant with David, assuring that a son of David would rule forever and bring peace and prosperity to the land. And so in the new covenant today, believers can trust the Lord to provide for them and to bless them for the resurrection shows this. The resurrection shows he can do it and he has done it. But it also allows us to look forward to the grand fulfillment of this promise where one day Christ is ruling forever. And so I'd like what one commentary had to say on this. And he says here, the expression... I will make an everlasting covenant probably should be interpreted to mean I will confirm my covenant as everlasting. The primary reference is the promises to David and there was no other covenant for him. Those promises were an eternal kingdom, an eternal king, a universal peace and righteousness, abundant prosperity, justice and equity throughout the world. Of course, the prophets are beginning to make it clear that the whole nation needs a new covenant, meaning inner spiritual life rather than an outward law code in order to realize the promises made to Abraham and David. He said that a lot better than what I could. So in other words, if Jesus had not fully satisfied God by his atoning death, he would not have risen. If he had not risen from the dead, he could not eventually be the seed from David and sit on David's earthly throne forever. And so this text is basically connecting the dots here 
and reminding us that he did rise and he will fulfill his kingly role. And it says that in verse four, the whole world will come to him as a great king. And so one of the things I want to remind you of the new covenant. The new covenant spoken of here is the covenant of grace that God provides for man. Man was unable to keep the law. God, seeing the weakness of man, provides a solution to man's problem. And God sends his only begotten son to fulfill the law of sacrifice. That was what chapter 53 was about. That is what he is pointing the nation of Israel to in 54. And that is now who he's pointing to here in 55. And it made me think in, in some other places in the New Testament The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross fulfilled the law for all time for everyone. And here's where we read more about this in the New Testament. Romans 6.10, it says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lived, he lives unto God. Matthew 10.32 also says, Whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him I will Confess also before my Father which is in heaven. And then John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ is so simple, but many miss it altogether. We are saved because of our faith just like faithful Abraham. And so let's read verse four real quick. I think it's important here. It says, behold, I have given him as a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander for the peoples. This verse here, verse four is talking about Christ. The him in this verse is talking about Christ. Verse four is essentially drawing upon David as an example. David was an example of an earthly king who was a godly king and a godly shepherd. Under his rule, God allowed Israel to be blessed and Israel ruled over the nations and other nations knew about Israel's God because of David and the promises that God made through the Davidic covenant. This verse four is a messianic verse. It's pointing to Christ and he's communicating the exact same picture here for us. And we know that because of what verse five tells us. He says, surely you shall call a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you shall run to. We see that here. Isaiah is addressing Israel here. Remember this. He's putting them on notice, essentially, because Messiah will come and he will be the seed of David. There will be a new nation. Not only will God use for his purposes. And you can see that here in the text, but Christ will call upon this new nation, peoples and nations that never knew of God, Israel's God, because of Israel's disobedience, will now know about Israel's God because of the Messiah. 
and what he has done and what he will continue to do. Because remember, this hasn't happened yet as Isaiah is explaining this. So this is exactly what we continue to see up until today. And so in the same breath and thought, here in verse 5, we also see the future fulfillment of this as well in the millennial kingdom, when the nations will flock to Israel. And we're not there yet, but we're going to read about that in Isaiah chapter 60, in verses 5 through 9. And so essentially what we have here, I'm going to try to explain this, is you have Isaiah who is talking to Israel in the near future, you're going to the exile. In the near future future, you're going to come out of the exile. In the near future future future, there's going to be a Messiah that's coming that you need to look to. But then in the near future 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 times four, there's going to be this millennial kingdom that's happening. All of this is happening in verses three through five. It's amazing. All of it. Slowly being uncovered here. So when Isaiah is speaking in this sense, you can almost see how the Jews would be like, what in the world? What is going on? What is happening here? And so for this verse, we can read it and we can look back, but we can also read it and understand the present. And then for us, we can read it and see the future. Very similar in the book of Revelation, right? It's all future. But one day there will be people who will be reading those verses and that will slowly be unfolding. Some of these chapters will happen. They will see it before their very eyes. That's exactly what's happening here. And then he goes on and he says, Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Why do the nations flock to Christ? Why will this happen? Because the Lord has lifted Christ up. The Lord has also lifted up those nations in accordance to his plan through his blessing of restoration. Remember, 54 and 55 are about salvation. This is how God is choosing to accomplish this. And so if we go all the way back to verse one in chapter 55, this invitation is extended to everyone, regardless of who they may be. Refreshing, referring to the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord. He declares that he has made himself, verse four, to be a witness to the Gentile peoples and a leader and commander for the peoples, verse four. And so this prophecy finds its fulfillment for us today in the Great Commission by which the Lord Jesus instructs his apostles to bring the gospel to all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And so as the Lord predicts here in verse five, the Gentile nations will respond, right? And that's the idea here. They will, the Gentile nations will respond Right? A nation that did not know you will run to you. The Gentile nations. That is to say, people who were strangers to the Lord's Old Testament covenants. And they were saturated in paganism. Will hear of the Savior. 
And not only will they hear the Savior, they will be saved by the Savior. They will believe in the Savior. And if you turn with me back to Acts chapter 13, verses 47 through 49, I think this is an important scripture to kind of emphasize the thought here. Uh, Acts 13, verses 47 through 49, it says, for, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as the light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as, has, and as, many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That is what he's saying here in verse four is going to happen. He's talking to Israel about these things. And so as we close out this first invitation that was given to us, let us be reminded of the command to come to the Lord with all of our needs. But more so come with repentance. If we have sinned and come with a genuine heart of faith, not just because the Lord commands it, but it is doing so, you will have the greatest result ever, which is eternal life with Jesus Christ. And so let's look at our second invitation this morning from verses six through 10. And most of you may be familiar with these verses. And here in this second invitation, we will see the command to seek after the Lord. And again, like the first invitation, I've kind of broken this down into the call, the explanation, the benefit, the why, and then ultimately the result. So let's, let's read the second half of this chapter here, verses 6 through 10. And it says, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to Yahweh. And he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon Verse 8, most of us are familiar with. Verse nine, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth, from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with gladness and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the, the nettle, the myrtle will come and it will be to Yahweh for his renown, for an everlasting sign, which will not be cut off. And so what we see here in verse six, there's this issued gracious command, seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The Lord makes a gracious offer here. And it requires a response from all of us. There is the need to respond here to the Lord's call from the original invitation. 
And I thought about Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's also a note of urgency in this verse. There's a time when the Lord calls. While he may be found. But that's also insinuating that there's a time where he's not going to be able to be found. And we won't be able to seek after him anymore. And so essentially this urgency in this verse is basically saying this is the time to respond. For that divine call of sovereign grace might not continue to be addressed to your heart indefinitely. Christ speaks of this exact same urgency in the Gospels. He says it in John chapter 12, verse 35 through 36. And this is Jesus speaking, and he says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There's always a temptation for all of us to put off dealing with the Lord until a later time. The lies that tell us I can wait. I have time. We come up with all kinds of excuses. Excuses like, I'm enjoying my child. I am a a child enjoying my childhood. I'm a teenager getting my education. I'm a young man or woman establishing my career and family. I'm in the prime of my life, occupied with my business. I am newly retired, enjoying my leisure time. Doesn't matter what stage of life we are at. The temptation will always be there. That temptation of let's deal with my sin at another time. But it is extremely dangerous thing for us to do. It's extremely dangerous to our spirituality. It is extremely dangerous to put off Christ until a later date. To toy around with and resist the grace of God. It is dangerous to put all of this off. It's dangerous to resist this call that he is saying here. And so I thought of the verse in Hebrews 3.15 where all of us are exhorted. And he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the time that God can be found. We must seek him now. Today is the day of salvation. This is one thing in a person's life they should never, ever put off. And parents and grandparents, you have a role in this with your kids and your grandkids. And so this is kind of the urgency when he says, seek Yahweh while he may be found. There's a lot of weight here. 
and responsibility. And look at verse 7. He says, let the wicked forsake his ways. And what Isaiah is basically telling us here is the need for repentance among God's people. Repentance is simply turning around, turning from our way, turning to God's way. Simply, this is what it means to return to the Lord and what he's saying here. And we can never walk in God's ways until we have forsaken our own way. And so the Lord's glorious restoration works in and through repentance. That is what he's telling us here. So what Isaiah is essentially getting at here is true faith in Christ goes hand in hand with repentance. When we respond to Christ's invitation, we must entrust our whole life to him. We hand over to him our sins in deeds and in thoughts in order to take hold of him and the new life that he provides. And so I want to point out the idea here from the word forsake. This is an integral part of seeking the Lord from, first, from verse 6 and turning from sin. These two things go hand in hand. John the Baptist had the message as well. His message was what? Repent and prepare for the coming of the Lord. Jesus' message was very similar. And I'll share with you some of these verses as well. In Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1.15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And we see in the following verses that the disciples continue this message of repentance as well. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so all of that that we're pointed out in the New Testament, we are seeing that exact same theme and call right here in Isaiah as well. The same consistent message. Repent, forsake, and return to the Lord. That is what Isaiah is telling Israel And he's also saying in the future, these nations will do the same thing. And so we see within the second invitation, this command to seek after God. And we see Isaiah's call of urgency. And he is pleading with us to make this invitation a very sure thing. And so what we're going to see here in these next few verses is God's explanation of this invitation to seek. God's ways are higher than our ways and God's word is effectual so that his plan will ultimately be fulfilled. And so verse seven gives us the assurance that when we approach Christ with faith and repentance, we are greeted with mercy and a pardon. This is important because as we look at verses eight and nine, This assurance that we get from verse 7 is grounded in the very character of God explained in the next two verses. 
And most are familiar with both of these verses. So God's sovereignty, God's omniscience are commanded by this statement where he says his thoughts, or in other words, his purposes, his intentions, and his ways. In the Greek, it's Derek. And what it means is ways, road path, path, direction. So his thoughts, his ways, his directions are higher than ours. In other words, while God may certainly be known by men, he is still incomprehensible in the totality of his person and the totality of all of his purposes. Therefore, he's revealing himself to men by his word, which what he's saying here shall not return void. Or in other words, it's not going to return in vain. It's going to accomplish. The word of God, therefore, will accomplish his purpose in, a, in announcing salvation to all of mankind. And so speaking through Isaiah, God is reminding us of this. He's basically saying here, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And so we need to remember, God doesn't think the way we do. We get into a lot of trouble when we expect that he should think as we do. Because we are made in the image of God. We can relate to God's thoughts, but we cannot master them. And when he says, nor are your ways my ways, we need to remember God doesn't act the way we, the way we do. He does things his way. And his ways are often not our ways. And we get into a lot of trouble when we expect that God should act the way we do or needs to act a certain way for us. If that gentle rebuke wasn't enough in these verses, he tops it off with reminding us of how wide this gap really is. And he says in verse nine, for as the heavens are higher than the earth. So how far is the distance between God's thoughts and ours? How far is the distance between his ways and ours? The distance is as great as the heavens are higher than the earth. A little piece of humble pie right before us. In other words, God's ways are beyond the comprehension of man. God is all-knowing. Man knows but a fraction of the here and now. God lives in eternity. He knows all because everything is a part of his plan. And brothers and sisters, if that didn't convince you enough of being reminded of the gap, if that didn't convince you enough of who God is and his character, God basically gives us an illustration here that puts us essentially in checkmate. And so when we read in verses 10 and 11, 
he is just furthering his point here of this illustration and this extension of his character. And he says, for as the rain comes down. And so he's using this figurative illustration of the water cycle. The Lord illustrates this essential principle that his word shall not return void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And so what he's saying here is rain and snow, they come down from heaven and they do not return void before serving their purposes on earth. They water the earth and they make it bring forth, what does he say? Bud, right? And, and bear sprout. So the rain and the snow eventually do return to heaven, but not before accomplishing their purpose on earth. So even so, what Isaiah is saying here, God's word, when he sends it down from heaven, his Messiah, does not return to him void. Instead, it always fulfills his purpose on earth. So in other words, the word of God will likely produce, I'm sorry, the word of God will likewise produce its intended results in fulfilling God's spiritual purpose and his plan. And that's what we're seeing here in Isaiah 55. The rain ministers to people upon the earth. God controls the rain and the snow as he does everything else. Without the rain, we could not have crops that are growing or flowers that are blooming. The rain is a gift from God for all of mankind. I think you get the idea here. This means that God is not just talk. When he talks, his word actually accomplishes something. It it accomplishes his intended purpose. The word of the Lord has power. And it never fails. And in his intended purposes, he makes sure it happens. And so listen to what Spurgeon said on this verse. It is an irrevocable word. Man has to eat his words sometimes and unsay his say. He would perform his engagement, but he cannot. It is not that he is unfaithful, but that he is unable. Now, this is never so with God. His word never returns to him void. Void. Go, find ye the snowflakes, wingering their way like white doves back to heaven. Go, find the drops of rain rising upward like diamonds flung from the hand of the mighty man to find a lodging place in the cloud from which they fell until the snow And the rain returned to heaven and mocked the ground, which they promised to bless. The word of God shall never return to him void. He's explaining the plan here. He's telling them what is going to happen and how this is going to work. And what I find interesting here in verse 10, where it says, Make it bring forth a bud or a sprout that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The use of these pictures to illustrate the operation of God's word shows that God's word ultimately brings forth fruit. 
It also shows that the fruit has many different applications. The same grain that gives seed to the sower also gives bread to the eater. And I also think what's interesting here is by by starting using the seed, right? The starting process of farming and the end result, bread, you have like total completion here. God is using that as that illustration. God's word has something to accomplish. God doesn't just speak to hear himself talk. His word is not empty or lacking in power. This also means that God's word has a purpose. He didn't speak in profound ways just to blow our minds. He doesn't speak in ways that confuses us. And he doesn't speak in ways that leaves us scratching our head and and think of what's the possible interpretation of this. When God speaks, he accomplishes his purposes. And so the last thought I have on this verse here is think about think about what God is saying here when he says it shall it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And here's what I thought about this. Right. God's word doesn't barely get the job done. It shall prosper in the purpose God has for it. It is rich and full of life. God's word will always succeed and always fulfills God's purpose. It does not barely get it done. How often do we fall captive to that lie? And so I just want to point out um, that we read this same idea all over the New Testament So John chapter one, verses one through three, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. First Corinthians one twenty one. for after that is the wisdom of God. The world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. Does not return void. And so we see from this the power of the spoken word, the written word in the Bible. And I often share this with a lot of the guys that I meet up with and that I'm discipling. As I tell them, no one can study the Bible and remain the same. You can't do that. If you're actually reading the Bible, you cannot remain the same. It transforms you. It changes your life. So the question is, have you been transformed? And so within this second invitation, the command to seek, we have seen the call. We've seen this explanation that God gives us. And now let's look at the result of this in verses 12 through 13. He says, for you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. When God's people turn to him, when they listen to him and his word does his work in them, Here's the result, joy and peace. The joy is so great, it goes on to say that even the mountains and the hills and the trees are filled with the same excitement and the same joy. And this this joy that they're talking about, it's speaking of victory, victory over the sin. The victory that Christ now has in your heart and in your life. 
And ultimately, there's a small picture of this. This applies to the Jews being released from Babylon out of the exile. There's victory in that. God chose that way to show that to them as well. The victory is Christians are now released from sin. It's not a pattern in their life. And look at verse 13. It says on, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Again, here's this idea of transformation. Where before there was, remember, a barren woman, a deserted wife, a curse, right? Now we see the thorn. Now there will be beautiful and useful trees. So we saw the picture of restoration in 54 of Israel. Now we're seeing this restoration and transformation from no sin to these beautiful imagery here. And so the picture is very clear. In his glorious work of restoration and redemption, God takes away all of the barren, all of the curse, all of the sin, and he's bringing forth beauty and fruit. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. So one of the things I want to wrap up here says in the Davidic kingdom, positive changes in nature, including the reverse of the curse, will be an ongoing testimony to the Lord's redemption of his people. And we read about that in Romans chapter 8, right? Verse 19, Romans 8, 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to the fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that his creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So in other words, the wrath of God will be removed. And remember, I said all the near future future. That's what's happening here. The wrath of God will be removed. The ground will no longer be cursed. Jesus has removed the curse. Thorns sometimes are symbolizing sin. Jesus defeated sin. And so why will all of this happen? Because he says here in the verse, it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. When the Lord restores, all the work is done for his name's sake and for his glory. When the Lord restores, the work is done, completed, secure. So that is an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So in conclusion here, the divine invitation that we've just read from Isaiah 55, it's basically, it's extended to everyone. Everyone who is thirsty. It's extended to everyone that has no money. This is to say everyone and anyone who desires the gracious blessing of the Lord's salvation is invited to receive it with the assurance that it is graciously given by the Lord. The price has been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ that we read in chapter 53. The Lord implores us not to be foolish, to spend 
our lives and our labors and our time on things that don't matter because he asked the question, why do you do these things? And then on the contrary, he's urging us to listen. Listen carefully. Incline our ear. Why? Because it will be good with your soul and you shall live. And so the greatest invitation has been sent. And the Lord has commanded you and me to come and to seek him, to return back to him. If you haven't repented, but he also is providing this through Christ. And so what will your response be today? with these invitations. And then on the last page, I won't go through them for the sake of time, but I've got some applications there of how to apply some of this. And if you've got questions or you've got thoughts or concerns, I'll be up here if you want to chat. We've got plenty of elders and deacons in our church. Um, If we need prayer, um, I'll be here. But let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, we humbly come before you this morning with such a massive passage of scripture. Lord, we learned and you have revealed your plan of salvation for the entire world. And Lord, a lot of us in here have benefited from this. And Lord, there may be people here who don't understand what the plan is and they need to get on that plan. And Lord, those of us that have been walking in the faith, whether it be a year, a month, 10 years, 20 years, Lord, we, are, we still have a responsibility to come to you in repentance. We still have a responsibility to bring our sin to you. And Lord, what a glorious picture that we see here of your ways are not our ways. We do not know why you have chosen this way, but you chose your son. And because of what he did, We have now been saved from death and from sin, and we will spend eternity with you. And Lord, the imagery that we see here of you are using your word to accomplish salvation through us. What a privilege we have, but Lord, it comes with responsibility. So help us to listen carefully. Help us to incline our ear to your word. And Lord, there should be transformation. God's word shows that. We read that. And so help us leave here today with more of a transformed heart that reflects your word in Christ. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.